Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. In this edition of the show, we discuss the peak China rhetoric emerging in the West. For the past few months, analysts, economists, or politicians in the West have been discussing the theory that China's economy has peaked. Some agree that the Chinese economy has done so, and argue that sustained high growth for the country will inevitably be stifled because of insurmountable challenges in critical areas such as the economic structure, demography, etc. Can the peak China theory withstand careful examination? Are Chinese policymakers aware of and getting ahead of the challenges faced by the Chinese economy? What's the state of the Chinese economy? For these questions and more, I'm joined by Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, Dr. Lauren Johnston, Associate Professor, China Studies Center, University of Sydney, also Professor Doug Guthrie, Director of China Initiatives at Thunderbird School of Global Management. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining me for this very important topic.、Um, now, first up,、uh, briefly, let me get、um, an, an, a thought from all of you. I mean, how have the peak China th-、uh, rhetoric really come about, and how do you look at the general background of it?、Uh, Lauren, lady first, please.、Uh, hello, thanks for having me. I would say it began with the demographics peak. And so, you know, China's working age population has peaked, and now the population is declining. And I think a lot of people have drawn comparison to Japan, which I don't, because Japan's old after it got rich, and China still has all this potential because it's old before rich. So I think that's part of the origins.、Mm. Now, Professor Guthrie, what's your thought? Well, I mean, it, it, there's、uh, for years as we've watched China grow so dramatically over the course of the last four decades, and you know, register for for more than a decade double-digit growth.、Uh, there have constantly been questions about when is China's economy going to slow down,、uh, when is it going to hit its peak, and and then we're going to see negative growth. Or, and in this case, I just think this is a part of a maturing economy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have a, a transition from agriculture to manufacturing growth. You have investment-led growth that occurs,、um, and then things stabilize.、Uh, so it's interesting to me that we are so obsessing over this question of the China peak. I mean, China put in about 4.5 percent growth in 2023, and、um, you know, in the top six economies in the world, that was second best. And you know, so when you become a mature economy, growth tends to slow down. My personal view is that there's just a lot of agita over this、um, by、mm. Western economists and and Western observers, but、um, I'm not wor- that worried about it.、Mm. I, I think this is a part of economic development and growth. Okay, now、uh, Professor Yao, what about you? There are three indicators that China may already reach the very top. One、mm. is that the population is, as you mentioned. Uh, it's going down、uh, last year, and probably the trend would be、uh, the turning point of the Chinese population. The second is that、um, over the last two years, the Chinese GDP, as a proportion of the U.S., the、mm. biggest、uh, economy in the world, is actually declined. And、mm. the third is that China、uh, is facing a, a very difficult challenges between economic growth and, and carbon neutral. Uh, in order to have carbon neutral, China have to sacrifice、uh, a, a lot of economy expansion.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but this、uh, this is probably on service.、Um, another、um, issue, like the last speaker just mentioned, it is a phenomenon of a mature economy from a rapidly developing economy,、uh, population expansion and material expansion driven far growth to high quality growth.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is an inevitable trend,、mm. but、uh, you have to interpret the peak China、uh, quite carefully. Yes, in some indicators, China may not be able,、uh, or it's not possible,、uh, to maintain the the very high economic growth、uh, expansion, which to some extent、uh, it has、uh, been a, a huge miracle. 
for human development in the world history. But to some other experts, I mean, it also uh, have a tremendous challenges on the uh, climate change and also the living environment. Mm. So China have to adjust that. I think the adjustment to green development is a good step forward to high quality uh, uh, development in people's livelihood. So I don't actually uh, become pessimistic about the adjustment. There are other things like the population. Mm. Uh, population in China already have 1.4 billion uh, people, mm. uh, which is already very populous in a country which has the same size of the United States, but the population is four times. Right. So the slowdown of population population growth is also uh, is, is, a, is a complicated issue. Mm. Uh, and I believe the new technology should be able to address the problem of labor shortage. And right. um, China would not have suffered uh, too much because of the, the population slowdown. Mm. In terms of the economy, I think the, the calculation of the U.S. GDP and the calculation of the Chinese GDP uh, could be uh, fundamentally different because the U.S. over the last two years, uh, the, in terms of nominal GDP in measuring U.S. dollars, is increased rather rapidly. Mm-hmm. But uh, the real economy actually didn't change uh, too much. Uh, so it is actually inflated uh, artificially by hyperinflation artificially uh, inflated by the calculation of how GDP is uh, really collected. You look at China, I think the real GDP growth uh, is still there, 5.2% last year. Although measuring U.S. dollar term, it's actually uh, fairly stable. Mm. Uh, it's not expanded to some extent because of the devaluation of the renminbi. Mm. So I think we have to look at the longer term rather than look at the short term term. So well, uh, the mm. interpretation of the word peak uh, have to be done this way. Mm. Peak, it's a, a four-letter word, but certainly uh, very uh, complicated uh, uh, in this topic. Now, uh, let's examine you know, some of the uh, important factors uh, that are addressed in the Western analysis and also uh, already pointed out by all three of you. Um, the the first one would be the regulation uh, by the Chinese government. Mm, some of the Western analysis point this as a, a contributing factor that could possibly slow down growth. For example, in a, a November 2023 piece, uh, Greg Yip, who is the chief econ- economics commentator at uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, wrote, uh, quote unquote, starting in 2020, the Communist Party unleashed a regulatory crackdown on private business in online commerce, online education, gaming, ostensibly to clamp down on privacy and anti-competitive abuses, but mostly to cement its control over the private sector. Now, uh, Lauren, uh, I know that you observe, you know, these economic factors very closely. I mean, do you agree with the argument? Why or why not? Um, I think there's pros and cons for regulation. In the case of China's internet platforms, e-commerce, you know, there's some quite large dominant players that Mm. you can have oligopoly risks. And I think it's a sensitive time for that sector, especially because China is slowly introducing a digital currency. And this will have amazing kind of interplay with digital platforms and traditional banks. So I think it's a, a very sensitive area normally, but it's an especially sensitive area now. Mm. And in the context of education and those services, I my sense is that it was less about private sector and more about inequality because China wants its poorer students to be on a fair platform in academia, mm. in, in school as its rich ones. And these expensive English language schools, international kind of private schools in Beijing and Shanghai obviously foster inequality and they foster such a an amazing work ethic that people, you know, children can't enjoy their childhood with this race to the bottom of paying for all this extra study. So mm-hmm. 
I think there was actually a humanitarian angle even mm. to that crackdown. Mm. I really think that was a gift to children. Mm. Professor Gossery, um how how would you respond to Lauren's comment and um you know, do you see these regulations as um somewhat of um obsessive control by the government uh, on the Chinese economy? Yeah. Um, so the, my first response is I, I I love what Lauren said, and I'm supportive of this idea that we need to frame this in the broader context of what the, the, the government in, is trying to achieve with regulation. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a great point. Like there are issues that are humanitarian issues. There are equality issues. Um, and so I think that really trying to think broadly, not just about this being a crackdown on the private economy or the private sector or a support of the private sector. Uh, I think the Chinese government thinks broadly about what it wants to see develop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really as an important strategic issue. The second issue that I would argue and that my team thinks a lot about this particular issue in terms of how do we understand healthy economies? Uh, and typically, I think the field of economics looks at private versus public or private versus state led. Mm -hmm. And we're much more interested in the idea of the question is not state led or not. The question is centralized or not. Mm -hmm. And so it's really a question of central control versus competition. And Mm -hmm. so here we we often cite uh, Andrew Walter's brilliant essay from the mid 1990s on local governments as industrial firms. And I think the important thing to think through is the Chinese government is thinking through what long-term plans are, and there are five-year plans, and, uh, you know, sometimes these plans are overestimates or they don't think clearly enough about what the what the next phase of a development is, and, and there are mistakes that are made. But the thing that we love really about the structure of the economy mm-hmm. is that although there's still state involvement in state planning, there's a very decentralized competitive system in which local governments are incentivized through KPIs to think about economic development and to think about innovation and the building of industrial clusters or the building of different areas of development. And so here when we kind of observe this and think, oh, my goodness, the Chinese government is cracking down on the private sector. What we're missing is that the Mm -hmm. Chinese economy is still very vigorous in terms of competition and innovation about economic development. So some concerns with kind of a greater trend or tone about about cracking down on the private sector. But again, what Lauren said, I think is true. You have to put this in the framework of what are they trying to achieve? And there are broader issues that have to do with inequality and humanitarian issues. And then the question is, is China's economy still competitive in economic development? And I believe it is. Mm. Professor Yao, how do you respond to that? Especially, you know, is the Chinese economy still competitive market economy? Professor Yao. On the main, on the main, it's certainly a very competitive economy. Mm. You can see some uh, key indicators in the economy. Last year, China exported the largest volume of uh, vehicle uh, motor car into the rest of the world, surpassing mm. Japan, which is mainly contributed by the private sector rather than the state sector. And the, the second issue is like the allegations that China cracked down the private business. Mm. Mm-hmm. You put in the newspaper, but I think it is uh, not a real allegation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese government has paid serious attention to the private sector. Uh, the, the the contribution of the private sector in different aspects, in terms of uh, tax revenue, in terms of innovation, in terms of uh, you know you know GDP, in terms of employment, in particular, they are still the mainstay. Of, of, of the, the Chinese economy, the, the public sector, uh, although they they have a fairly strong player in the so-called uh, utility transportation system, but uh, in the in the highly competitive uh, sector is basically now dominated by the private sector, mm. uh, including including high net energy, uh, you know, new energy vehicles and and computing and so on. So the <clears throat> the, the, why why the Chinese government want to restrain uh, the 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 e-commerce mm-hmm. uh, the platform? Uh, it's mentioned by uh, one of the speaker uh, because of the oligopoly, the monopoly, which uh, is to the benefit of the some 
special individual, some special company. Right. Uh, and in the private education, the, the online education, the public education is everywhere. Mm. Uh, Chinese society is facing a tremendous challenges. On the one hand, the, gov- the, the, the parents, they want their children to be fully educated. They don't want to lose at the learning point, mm-hmm. uh, at the starting point. Right. And um, it, it, the situation is quite serious. If the private sector are uh, profit-driven, uh, trying to you know get into each of the family and squeeze all the all, all the money from the pocket of the parents, I think the society will become holistic in the future. Mm. So by restraining this kinds of activity to uh, to to support more public education, uh, get more uh, you know equal access to all children. Uh, I think that's more important. Mm. Uh, what the government may have to do more is on the one hand, restricting these kinds of uncontrolled uh, on-street private education, but uh, government have to do more making investment, particular investment in teachers, in schools, facilities, and also in terms of the curriculum and so on, mm. to get more resources to all the children rather than to just the private sector. Mm. So this is a um, is a real issue, rather than uh, whether the government is cut down or not. Mm. Uh, actually, using the word "cut down" is 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 not you know appro- is not uh, you know appropriate. Mm. It's more appropriate that China, especially in the social sector, education, healthcare, which are fundamentally uh, important uh, for the uh, everyday everyday people's. Uh, uh, likelihood. Mm, the indeed. government shouldn't allow the private sector to do everything they wish to do. But mm. in the manufacturing sector, in in the export sector, uh, I think the, the private sector are hugely discouraged, uh, sorry, hugely encouraged mm-hmm. rather than this. Mm. So you can see the competition. Uh, China is now the biggest exporter in the world. And, and who are exporting? It's the private sector. Mm, indeed, especially that can be reflected uh, in the auto sector, as Professor Yao has just mentioned. Well, another fact, sector in the Chinese economy that uh, Western analysis are usually cite as evidence of China's economic, um, you know, decline is the real estate industry. Um, I mean, the Western, not only the Western, but domestic media in China of, uh, talk about this quite this industry quite a lot too. Um, I have some argument from Peter Petri, who is a non-resident fellow at Zhang Fountain China Center at Brookings, who wrote uh, in November 2023, um, quote unquote, sales, construction stars and investments are plummeting and few major developers will survive without massive bailouts. A huge, uh, a large bubble is deflating partly as a result of government policy and leaves behind stunning examples of overbuilding. Uh, he meant that China's real estate uh, industry is in a huge crisis. Um, I don't know, Lauren, how, how do you see the current stage of China's real estate market, which is indeed, you know, seeing mild performance after a few decades of rapid expansion? Um, I think where the market is today was inevitable. Mm-hmm. It was an extraordinary bubble that is so many times the average income of people who can rent or buy, you know, beyond kind of long-run sustainable ones. So how how it deflates, how it unravels, how it stands still, whatever happens um, until, you know, per capita income catches up with those prices until you know it says i haven't even tried to follow the contemporary mechanics but Mm. i've long expected this sort of situation just given how unsustainable some of the foundations were but then i mean um professor guthrie how how much really um i have some uh, data which shows you know uh, of course the real estate uh sector um, estimates, you know, ranging up to 29, about one third of China's GDP, which is quoted by Peter Petri in this uh, in this piece. But really, um, how will this, you know, development in the real estate um, industry in China affect, you know, China influence China's economy, Professor Guthrie? Uh, 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the first thing that that's really important before answering your question is mm -hmm. just, I mean, real estate bubbles are not just a Chinese thing. These things happen everywhere. The United <laughs> States had subprime crisis in 2008. I mean, the, the, this is uh, figuring out how real estate develops and then uh, matching it to the economic growth and having a perfect fit is just it's rare. And of course, we've seen in in China, you know, we've all driven around cities and seen the massive building and the massive growth. And, mm. you know, it initially ties very well to investment led growth because you have all this investment and resources in building uh, these tremendous buildings. And then when they're empty, it's uh, because the prices are too high. It's it's not good. And so it's it's clearly an issue for China, but this is an issue for all economies as you try to fit real estate in with how things are growing for the economy in general. Mm. What I think is important to, again, keep in mind here is <clears throat> there is a real estate crisis. It is probably a third of the economy, and it's, pro it's certainly going to continue to hurt the Chinese economy for some time. Uh, but as long as there's kind of smart controlling and uh, the ability to think through mm. how to actually uh, make the housing available to people and how to keep prices down. Um, I think that's the important piece. The other thing that's really important here, though, and we may get to this in a, in a future question, but, you know, I mean, Chinese it, it, just culturally, but certainly post pandemic, mm. uh, Chinese savings rates are quite high. <laughs> and so, you know, household saving is about, you know, has risen from about a fifth of household income to about a third of household income. Mm -hmm. And so people don't just go out and speculate and spend money as aggressively as they do in places like the United States. And so, again, balancing all of these is is a complex picture because you have to think about economic development. You have to think about investment led growth. You have to think about consumption led growth um, and people aren't spending money. So how the government can kickstart. Uh, and incentivize people to spend money and even sort of change that mindset. That's a big challenge. Um, but mm. I, I guess, again, I'm I'm more optimistic mm. on the side because I think the government continually thinks about these issues and and, and doesn't just think crisis or no. Mm. Professor Yao, uh, we have uh, around two minutes to go into another break, but uh, I want you to start already on this question. I mean, how do you look at the current stage of China's real estate market? Uh, and, you know, are Chinese policymakers aware of the changes in people's, you know, investment and living preferences, really? Professor um, Yao. Certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the Chinese housing the real estate um, market has been expanding for over 25 years. Mm -hmm. And in between, although there are small adjustments, but this time is a big adjustment because the prices have been keeping up, uh, especially in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Shenzhen, and the, and the last city, the prices are uh, highly unaffordable for the medium and, and low-income people. So there should be some adjustment, but the adjustment, yes, this time is very big mm. uh, because of the, the you know the driving factors in the market have been keeping the bubble uh, bigger and bigger. And in order for the bubble to get smaller and smaller, I think it will take a long time. Mm. You have to look at the impact of the real estate uh, market on the real on the whole economy. You know, last year, China was still able to maintain 5.2% uh, of GDP uh, growth, right. which means that, yeah, uh, the real estate sector, if there's no, there were no bubble, the, the market could be, the growth rate could be higher. Mm. But actually, the, the, the real estate market has not actually fundamentally killed the Chinese economy. It had a big impact, but the impact seems to be uh, absorbed quite successfully so far. Mm. And maybe this year and next year, the, the real estate market will continue to be downward and there will be the pressure on the real economy also. Well, There's Professor Yao, I have to stop you there. But when we come back, uh, we will continue our discussion on the peak China rhetoric that have been emerging in the West. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back.
as one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. In this edition of the show, we discuss the peak China rhetoric that has been emerging in the West. We have with us Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kang Professor of Economics at China's Chongqing University, Dr. Lauren Johnston, Associate Professor, China Studies Center, University of Sydney. Also, we have Professor Doug Guthrie, Director of China Initiatives at Thunderbird School of Global Management in the United States. Now, continue with our discussion. Uh, Professor Yao, earlier you were talking about you know how the Chinese economy will keep absorbing you know the real estate uh, the influence of the real estate mark uh, market. Could you please continue? Yes, I think the last year and this year, mm-hmm. um, especially during the pandemic, um, China is able to absorb the the downsides of the real estate market, and I think for the longer uh, health of the national economy, it's mm-hmm. very important to absorb this uh, bubble uh, now rather than in the later stage. So uh, people's government, local government uh, consumers, they have to prepare that the sluggish real estate market will continue for some time. We just don't know how many years, mm-hmm. but maybe two, three or five years or even longer. So the, the development strategy have to be changed. The consumption uh, procurement uh, behavior of, of, of house, householders, mm-hmm. they have to change. Mm-hmm. And more effort should pay to the non-Leo exchange sector, particularly the high-tech sector, manufacturing, the- uh, mm. the new the new uh, vehicle sector and so on and so forth. Then Professor uh, Yao, can and, I in the AI. Mm. Can I interpret Hello? yeah, yeah can I then so, can I just interpret uh you know these changes in the spending and consuming uh uh, consumption habits of Chinese households as moving toward the direction of a more healthier and more mature one? Yes. Mm. I mean, by spending uh, 75% of their, their wealth on the on the real estate sector is certainly mm. quite unusual mm. uh, in the global economy history. So China's um, uh, consumption spending structure had to change. Mm. Well, talking about that, uh, that's also you know something uh, some uh, something that uh, Western uh, economists uh, often quote in their analysis about the Chinese economy, uh, which is the relations between you know investment and consumption. I think Professor Guthrie earlier already mentioned this too. Uh, for example, Peter Petrie said China is um, investing too much. Um, in unproductive projects and consuming too little. This is a legacy of extraordinary 10.5% annual growth between 1990 to 2010, which uh, would not have been possible without high rates of investment. Um, well, Professor Guthrie, it is transitioning you know, from an investment-driven economy to consumption-driven one inevitable for China? Why or why not? Well, so here again, I... I, I... I'm always reluctant to just think about sort of standard economic growth models where you have investment-led growth and then that transitions (laughs) to consumption-led growth and everything's perfect. Um, Where I think China's economy has been powerful is in really creating incentives for for really innovative growth in different types of investment. Uh, And this, you know, puts people to work and then that puts money in the the pockets of of, of workers and, and their families and ultimately then you hope that people tend to consume more and more. And as I mentioned previously, you know, China does have culturally and historically a a, a significant uh, savings rate Mm. behavior. And so getting that transition to work perfectly is is depends on a lot of factors. The important thing here, though, is, again, thinking about investment as not just investment in infrastructure like roads or investment Mm -hmm. in building buildings or investment in building factories but it's innovative investment that that really takes sort of different forms and different ways of building what economies need Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you think about building industrial clusters or when you think about building you know 
new innovation around electric vehicles and mm -hmm. lithium batteries and kind of really owning that space. I mean, what we've seen recently is just, I think, a tremendous story about, yes, you have this, these great innovators like Apple and Tesla, um, and then you have really, really innovative industrial supply chains in China that are, are just making China inextricable in the industrial supply chain. And so here again, I, I think it's going to be important for money to continue to flow in China. And so you have investment-led growth and you do need people to, to spend money and, and kind of continue to grow in consumption-led growth. But I just don't see it as an either-or spectrum mm. in which China has to up its consumption in order to continue to grow economically. I just, I do, I just don't think we're <laughs> anywhere near the end of China's growth and potential in building the manufacturing supply chain. Mm. This is certainly not, as people would say, one plus one equals two issue. Um, well, Lauren, uh, how would you respond to something that Professor Guthrie just mentioned? Innovative investment. I mean, um, is will that how if how um, beneficial will that be for the Chinese economy? And is China already doing that? It certainly is in some areas. Mm -hmm. Certainly in you know renewables, renewable energy, renewable vehicles, transportation. I think the benefits to the Chinese economy. I mean, they're immediate in the sense of, you know, these are companies employing people, mm. but there are challenges in terms of producing outputs from that innovation and finding the right markets for them and the sustainable markets. So obviously, if China rises up this ladder very quickly, there'll be more tensions with other countries, other current providers. So there'll be a need to navigate those. Mm and a need to find kind of ideal consumers for that innovation also, which, you know, may take some shuffling. And that's what we say. We don't have the, the either or issue. Like some of these goods need consumers in China and elsewhere. So I think it's a straddle, you know, mm. it's, a, it's just as it always has been. It's one foot forward, then the other foot forward, back and so on. Mm. So it's, but it's definitely not, it's not, just that you start having innovation and everything works out. You know, you need the consumers and the trade relationships and so on. Mm. Mm. Professor Yao, um, well, you know, after hearing these two, I mean, what's your what's your thought on the, you know, the balance uh, in the Chinese economy between investment and consumption at the moment? Yeah. Uh, I, I will talk about the, the history first. Uh, mm. In the in the early years of Chinese opening up in the form, mm. uh, the investment uh, is was very high. The, some many years it, it's more than twenty percent of growth, mm. so it's double the growth of GDP. So the investment led GDP growth is one of the the very spectacular story of Chinese uh, economy miracle. Mm. Now, nowadays, the, the investment is the lower level, one digit lower level level. So people come up with a theory that must be consumption driven. But one has to be careful. Mm. Uh, for such a large uh, country with such a population and a very diversified uh, national economy, geographic, geographical differences, and also the rapidly changing demographic structure. I think investment is still very, very important. Mm. So we shouldn't ignore the importance of investment, in my view. Over the last 10 years, or maybe less than 10 years, the Chinese uh, investment growth rate has been relatively low mm. uh, compared to what the Chinese economy wants to achieve uh, to become a high-income country. And invest, uh, consumption, uh, people shouldn't ignore the consumption uh, in the 1990s and early decade of this century, the consumption expansion, uh, people's income expenditure also increased mm. uh, fairly rapidly, like 7% a year, which is very high. So investment is actually a, a precondition uh, for economic expansion. And without economic expansion, there would not be enough job for the people and if you don't create enough job for the people, then they would have a limited income. And if they have limited income, how they can spend? Mm. 
So uh, it is a, it's actually a complicated issue. It's not like who less work. Actually, it got to be a balance. Mm. The second issue, the second issue is that um, the the Chinese investment may have to change some direction slightly. Mm-hmm. In the past, where the investment is in manufacturing, in uh, transportation, and now China is the biggest man- manufacturer in the world. The Chinese transportation system is second to none. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, what China needs to do is to invest in the social sector, for example, like healthcare mm. and people and education system. Or is there still a very, uh, you know, significant geographical differences and also the difference between the urban and the countryside and between different sides of the city. Uh, the Chinese government, uh, all level, I think, they have to think of how to invest more profitably and mm. more productively so that uh, you can meet the rising need of high-quality uh, you know, requirement by the people. Mm. Uh, rather than just a narrowly focused uh, uh, you know, investment in the traditional sector. Mm. I think the investment should be more driven to the social sector. The social sector would have a more long-lasting benefit uh, for the uh, gradual improvement of the people's likelihood. Mm. That's the ultimate goal of economic development anyway. Indeed. Now, we have already two pieces for Chinese policymakers. One is, uh, as Professor Guthrie said, innovative investment. And second, as Professor Yao said, investment uh, in the social sector, social welfare, which will uh, ultimately, you know, benefit uh, people's lives as, you know, uh, it would do in any country. Well, um, another factor, you know, that Western experts uh, tend to count in when discussing the peak China theory is uh, population, because India has uh, surpassed China, <clears throat> excuse me, as the world's biggest population, and China saw a negative birth rate for the first time in 2022. Well, uh, Lauren, how do you see the changes in China's demography in recent years, and what are the possible influences of it on the Chinese economy? Um, well, I guess you've just noted the peak of the population and the intensive population aging that's now emerging. I think the intensive population now is a function of things that happened several decades ago. So mm. there's no surprise that there's extensive, intensive population from now aging from now on. And I think from the 1980s after China implemented the one-child policy, which really confirmed this later period now of population aging and what would be a peak population of China sometime in the 20s. Since that time, China's, from what I see, has been roughly planning for exactly this type of period, which is where it shifts from a demographic dividend to a talent dividend. So Mm. instead of factories rich in you know huge numbers of workers now you have factories rich in robots and automation and emerging services industries and emerging innovation so it's kind of like china had this solo growth model so to speak for for the last few decades but now it's been preparing its you know younger workers who are far more educated than their parents on average not all of them some of them are incredibly more educated. So I, I think it's a question of how clunky will the transition be to more human capital-rich growth? Mm. And that will determine how successfully China navigates this population quantity to population quality um, transition, which I think it's been preparing for for four decades. So. Mm. I don't at all see it as a shock. I don't see it as a stress. I see it as just the next period of transition. Mm. Well, uh, from population quality to population, a uh, quant- quantity to quality, and now uh, talent dividends. Mm, Professor Guthrie, do you agree with Lauren? And uh, you know how how do you see China's you know the changes that will happen following this uh, this uh, um, you know low birth rate uh, in the Chinese labor market? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Lauren made a lot of really good points here, and I would just emphasize 
a couple of things. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting here, again, we think of these in very, very uh, sort of clunky terms of like either you have, you know, a large population, you can put a lot of people to work or you have a, a shrinking population and India is going to be able to steal China's China's position in the manufacturing supply chain. And it's just not that simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is interesting that in China in the 1980s when the one child policy was set in place and there was a sense that we needed to really contain the population and contain population growth what i think the leaders didn't account for was the ways in which the notion of what a family is becomes a culturally embedded phenomenon so in 2016 when they said okay we can have more children again and then suddenly people are like well my ideal notion of what a family is is one child <laughs> three and or four we're people investing in education mm-hmm. and and so you do have this, you know, I think there, there was a misreading of how people would internalize what the norms of family are. Uh, but it has allowed the Chinese Chinese families to invest tremendously in their children and invest in education. Mm-hmm. And so you do get tremendous benefits from this as well. The one caveat that I would put on this as well, though, when people talk about India, okay, so India has surpassed China as the most populous nation on earth, suddenly all kinds of manufacturing industries are going to run to India because they have more surplus labor. It's just not that simple. It's just not because mm-hmm. it takes it has taken China four decades to build the most complex and sophisticated manufacturing supply chain in the world. And it's not just dependent on cheap labor. It is dependent on investment in industrial clusters and investment in infrastructure that move around. And so people talk about, oh, Foxconn has built a factory in Chennai. My goodness, now Apple's uh, iPhones are going to be made in India. That's not how Apple works. Apple relies on hundreds and hundreds of Chinese suppliers that build components, modules, final assembly. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't just Foxconn builds a plant in Chennai and suddenly China's going to lose all of its all of its business with Apple. It just doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. And so what China has done is really build this complex manufacturing supply chain. And it does depend on having bodies in the factory. Uh, so the decline in population is a concern. But I'm just not ne- nearly as worried as it is most. The one other thing that I would emphasize here is where China's been very smart is not just having uh, this division that Lauren talked about of of the the mm. large labor force and really investment in smart human capital. There is a middle ground that a lot of really well-developing economies invest in, which is vocational technical labor force. Mm-hmm. And China's been very good at investing in training people to be able to build complex things in more and more complex factory settings. Uh, so it's not just widgets putting things together. It's actually really thinking about how the supply chain works. And vocational technical labor force has been a very smart in, in investment for China. And it really seals its position in the manufacturing supply chain for many, many years to come, in my opinion. Mm. Professor Yao, do you have more to add about, you know, the uh, demography change in China? And another thing is, you know, with China's uh, popu- aging population, are the Chinese policymakers, you know, ready for this? Professor Yao. Yeah, you, you asked two very important issues. I mm-hmm. think there are pros and cons about the population turning point at, at this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, as I say, on the one hand, it is... Um, Probably people did not anticipate that the turning point is coming so soon mm. in 2022, 2021. Uh, but on the other hand, I think the, the Chinese government have been implementing this uh, one child in the rural area. It's actually two children uh, policy for many decades. But more importantly, why the population slowed down is pe- because people's uh, you know, value has changed. So mm. this no value, uh, most mostly agrarian, you know, agricultural, uh, you know, traditions. Mm. Uh, people want to have more children because they fear that when they get old, they have no people to look after, mm. uh, physically or financially. Now, because of the urbanization and commercialization, and now plus the Chinese socialist style modernization, uh, people have changed. They they want to enjoy more themselves than the traditional, uh, the older generations. The younger one, they want more freedom, individual uh, flexibility, and so. On. So this, on the one, on the other hand, it is actually an improvement of people's uh, 
uh, living quality. Mm. And what next question is that how the Chinese society, how the government, the society, the people have to adjust their um, attitude toward a, 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 you know, a declining population force and declining population as a whole. Mm. I think automation is one of the major issues. Uh, I visit quite a lot of major factories, modern mm-hmm. factories. There are fairly few people, to be honest, to produce massive amount of vehicles, uh, handset, and also computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, including clothing and so on. Just many factories are now automatic, even on the field in the countryside. Uh, when when the farmer produces the agricultural product, it's highly capital and technological uh, intensive. So the, the, the whole uh, production system has been transformed. So it, it is more a social issue. For example, uh, they, the population are aging, Rapidly, so how to look after the older older people? How to ex- possibly extend the so-called retirement age mm-hmm. so that the labor force would not uh, shrink too rapidly? And how to build up the welfare system to look after the uh, the aging people? Uh, it, it could be a challenge, but it could be also an opportunity for the Chinese economy to continue into a different trajectory. Mm. In the Leo sector, there will be more automation and AI-driven uh, economy expansion to produce more goods and services. And in the in the Leo human sector, uh, we have to gear more resources toward looking after the elderly and the sick. So these are the, the, the big challenges that our uh, government have to face mm. uh, in the new era compared to the traditional uh, case when you have lots of people. Mm. Yeah. Right. Add, yeah, 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 please, Lauren. Yeah, 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 Lauren, go um, on. Mm. wanted to add that I, I think one of the ways the Chinese government has been quite strategic and clever over the last few decades is that once in the 1980s, China realized it would be old before rich, that, you know, mm. there was simply no feasible growth rate. That would mean by the 2010s, 2020s, when China was aging intensively, that the population would be rich per capita. Then it, you know, it, it's it's conditioned the people who would be its elders at that time, i.e., the people born in the 50s and 60s, mm. not to expect a generous retirement. So, you know, they they said we'll be old before rich, we'll be old before rich. Therefore, we can't set this extremely generous pension. We can't give you extremely generous health insurance because these costs will will weigh so heavily on the economy mm. that the whole development process will stall. And where that puts China in a good position today to some extent is that the government is positioned to kind of to improve people's prospects and to exceed their expectations. Whereas in somewhere mm. like Japan or in the West, the large generation was conditioned to have like a third life mm. and a generous pension and amazing free health care, none of which today is, is really fairly affordable. So you have this very difficult situation where governments in some ways need to take back from the older generation, but it's very hard to do because they're so dominant and they vote and so on. So mm. actually China's government has been quite clever in preparing today's emerging old generation to expect, mm. you know, to, to be careful in retirement. And now they can offer them above their expectations, which I think is, is a very clever approach. Mm. One of the ways, you know, to take care of the elderly. Well, uh, there there's another issue that uh, analysts often point to, which is, you know, the sanctions by the United States and its allies in critical sectors such as chips, uh, electric vehicle, etc. But uh, it's not certainly not a 100% set that, uh, you know, uh, U.S. and China will compete in a decoupled condition. And some of America's critical allies in the European Union do have their own concerns about this. Um, I wish we had more time to touch upon that, but uh, I still want to bring two very, very important uh, notion that the Chinese government had brought about in the past few years. 
that are you know ways to deal with、uh, the Chinese economy. One is Chinese modernization, which is brought about in the twentieth National Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party of China. The other one is new productive forces,、uh, which is brought by Chinese President Xi Jinping、um, in September twenty twenty three. Well,、uh, Professor Yao. Explain to us, you know, from these terms, how do you see the blueprint by the Chinese leaders on China's ec- economic structure moving forward? Professor, yes,、yeah. over the over the last six, six years or so,、uh, when、mm. Donald Trump took power in the in the U.S. administration, I think China has facing a very tough,、uh, you know, inter- international,、uh, you know, environment. Uh, not only the U.S. want to decouple with China, I think the U.S. ally,、uh, the G7 country, and some others, they also want to decouple with China. But over the last six years, China has been successful in two aspects. The、uh, the first aspect is that、uh, China is still able to maintain this kind of international、uh, trade relationship with the traditional、uh, partners such as the U.S., the EU. And, and the most industrialized country in the world, and the other the other thing, China was very successful in diversifying、uh, to the less developed countries,、mm. for example, like Russia,、uh, like the country in in, in Southeast Asia. So they they was able to maintain China's high level of export.、Uh, this last year was stable, but in the previous year during the pandemic, actually Chinese export. Mm-hmm. Uh, was load was increasing、uh, quite remarkably against the torrent.、Uh, so this is one thing. The other thing that、uh, because of the technological、uh, conflict between the U.S. and China, basically the U.S. want to kill China's most advanced technology companies such as Huawei and and the like. But、uh, over the last few years, it it proved that China's Companies are highly resistant because they have invested heavily in the basic technology, the the, the chips, the chip computing, software, satellite, and also new energy and so.、Mm. And Chinese innovation also have get into some area with the Western country they are、uh, not very interested in. For example, like the renewable energy,、uh, solar power,、mm. wind power. Uh, and now we're talking about、uh, energy vehicles, and so, so the and the high-speed train system.、Mm. Uh, there are quite a lots of things that China start doing, which is、um, remarkable, and the West would be quite well, better、mm. for that. So the well, couple actually have、mm. some negative effect, but it actually forced China to be to be more,、mm. uh, a, you know, efficient. Mm. Well,、uh, that is a really short time for a very interesting topic.、Uh, I want to thank our guests again,、uh, Dr. Yao Shujie and also Dr. Lauren Johnston and Professor Doug Guthrie. If you want to listen to more of our programs, you can find our podcast by searching "World Today." I'm Luo Kun in Beijing. Thank you for joining us. Bye for now.